Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, episode 52 with Rene Mullenstein. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. Uh, this show we've got a real cracker for you, uh, a real coup for myself. Uh, we've got someone who's a big inspiration to me, obviously someone with a similar coaching philosophy to myself uh, on the show, Rene Muhlenstein. Uh, so if you don't know, Rene obviously uh, made his name at Manchester United uh, as assistant manager to, to Alex Ferguson, uh, but obviously made his way up as a skills coach, um, a disciple of Will Cover and uh, working in the Man United Academy and then working his way up and working individually with uh, all the top players there. So this is a fantastic uh, one. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. I took lots from it. Obviously, like I said, Rene is someone I really look up to, someone who has a similar coaching methodology as myself. So listen to him talk about how he's working not only with the young players at Man United, you know, the, the sevens, the eights, the nines, but all, also with the first team players like Diego Forlan and Paul Scholes and all those guys and how important that individual skill technical work is even at the highest level. So not only at the grassroots level, uh, but also working academy, but also at first team level and how you can have such powerful change with players. So this is a real good one. Uh, one took a while to organize, so I'm really thrilled that we got Rene on. And uh, don't forget, if you want to know, learn more about uh, ball mastery and 1v1 and small-sided games, the sort of stuff that Rene does and what I do as well, check out the My Personal Football Coach Level 1 uh, online coaching course, e-learning course available on the app. Lots going on with the club partnership as usual. Proud to uh, welcome, well, uh, Seattle Sounders uh, Pro Club in, in America. Been using the app for a while now since lockdown. Proud to welcome St. Johnston up in Scotland, another pro club, uh, to join the many clubs, pro clubs all around the world utilizing the My Personal Football Coach app. This is unique. That's why pro clubs and grassroots clubs all around the world are utilizing it. So give all your players access to the My Personal Football Coach app, the world's leading technical training app. The only app really which is, this, you know, that quality philosophy proven at the highest level with obviously my background working at the top clubs. Similar sort of philosophy to what Rene uh, did at Manchester United. And then obviously uh, all giving all your players access to the coaches pass as well. The online resource which has hundreds of uh, exercises, skills, drills, technical uh, uh, exercises uh, for your coaches so you upskill your players and your coaches and obviously you can log in you can check the data you can also set players uh, unit plans for the week training plans for the week uh, so lots of control and players have a, a leaderboard which they can compete with and of course look we're still doing that um, that lockdown special even though lockdown is sort of coming out of that now we're offering up to 70% off um, the the My Personal Football Coach Club partnership. So not only is it the best one out there in the world, it's also the most economical one out there as well so we can support as many clubs as possible at the time. Uh, just remember, if you are enjoying the show, please do leave a review. I really would appreciate it. Uh, really looking forward to you listening to this Rennie one. It's a great one and getting back on it and uh, back on all these podcasts coming out. And just a reminder, don't forget the uh, My Personal Football Coach and Coaching Family webinar series, which is every weekend. Uh, we're again back this weekend with um, uh, Luke Manning, New York City FC Academy Manager and 
Daniel Watson with a foundation special, foundation phase special, the Wolverhampton Wanderers lead uh, foundation coach. So thanks very much, guys, for all your support, and we'll see you on the other side. So, Renny Mullenstein, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Uh, really, thanks very much for taking your time. Could you just give us a, like, just, uh, give us an understanding? Where, where did your coaching career start? Where and when and how did that come about? Um, originally, obviously, I, I, I've been born in, in Holland, um, in a smaller village. Anybody that knows Holland a little bit, I was sort of caught in the triangle between Nijmegen, Eindhoven, PSV and Venlo. A uh, small village. Um, we, I was lucky that I was. I grew up with a group of really good, talented players. Uh, although scouting at the time wasn't really at the same level as it is now, um, so we, we really just played our our football in our local club. But we did we did very well over there. And as I was sort of starting to play, I started to to basically gain an interest outside just playing for coaching as well. So my coaching career started as young as 16. I was 16 and I was asked to help with one of the younger age groups at the club, I think eight, eight nine years uh, of age, and I started to coach them. And I never, never stopped ever since. Um, you know, so I've been, uh, been starting coaching from a very young age onwards. So, and tell us about your, your, your coaching methodology. So how did you, where did you learn how to coach? What was the first sort of, you know, uh, um, sparks in coaching? In ways, I, I sort of entered um, one of the youth coaching courses of the, the Dutch FA. They came to be very, very early. So you learn the, the basics, basically, of organizing, planning, and, and running a session. But the most important thing for me was that when I was sort of strolling through a neighbouring village called Boxmere, and I came back, uh, came past the bookstore, and there was this book in the in the window, and it said the uh, the plan for the ideal footballer, and it was written by Will Curver. Everybody probably knows about Curver coaching. So I went in, and uh, I packed up, you know, picked up a copy, had a look at it, just you know, went through the pages, and then went back to the front, and I read the preface, and that really struck me you know, struck home because when I read the preface, I thought you don't need to go to university to understand what this man means. And in a nutshell, basically what he was saying, he had the same sort of, he sort of missed something in his journey to become the best possible coach he could be. So he started to analyze, you know, the better teams that were out there and the better players that were out there at the time. So you talk about players like Stefano, Puskas, Cruyff, Bakamoa, and all of them age groups. And he basically realized that all those players had the ability to dominate the 1v1 situations in the game. So he then started to analyze, okay, how does that look like? Because not everybody does the same. And then he started to categorize all those 1v1 situations, which he broke down in four different, you know, situations, really, whether the defender is, you know, challenging from the side, from an angle, from behind, or in front of you. And, and, and that, I took that book with me, and that book was at that time was basically Curver explaining all the different moves by a sequence of four pictures. You know, picture one, picture two, picture three, picture four, with an explanation. And that's how I started to learn all those moves in the front of the garden, in the back garden. I started to, and to implement it with the young kids and the training, and I had a lot of success with it. So, I mean, because in, in this country, maybe people are familiar with the Cova coaching soccer school, but tell us a bit about Will Cova. I mean, he's the guy who created this and he wrote that book. Um, how important was he, you know, did you have interaction, much interaction after that with him? How important was he 
generally has an influence in your career? Yeah, very, very big because as I grew up, I went through the different courses. Um, but obviously, I, I really had a, a big interest in, in his career and what he was doing. So I was gathering as much information as I could. I was speaking to contacts that were in contact with him. And uh, eventually, through a little bit at a later stage, you know, when I was growing up, I had the opportunity to join the CIOS, which is the Central Institute of Sports. Uh, it was very hard for me to in, to basically get a place when you were 18, 19, when you saw the coming of high school, but I met, eventually I mentioned to get on it. The director in that uh, university, SEALS, was very, very helpful to me. I explained what I wanted, and basically my final project was a sort of a 20-minute video that basically explained the what, what Curver, the message that Curver wanted to send to all those coaches out there in football. So basically what he was saying is, we need to develop more coaches that can teach young kids the skills of all those great players. That was the message. And at that time I was a youth coach at NEC Nijmegen. And I did exactly that. I was I was just working you know, purely on skill development and, and skills and one-to-one -one and dominating. We were really, really developing really, really well. And at one point, um, by coincidence, I ran into one of the most influenced journalists of a magazine called Football International in Holland, who actually wrote the preface of the book of Wheel Curve. He was a big Wheel Curve fan. We sort of talked about my project. He says, "Come and have a, you know, have a, you know, when you finish it, let me have a look at it." And he then eventually got me in contact with Curve, who at that time was just getting a new job in Qatar. That was around 1993. Um, Got a long story short, but eventually I, I got to meet him close to where he lives in Limburg. It was the most, um, you know, uh, interesting conversations I've ever had with a man. I've, I've never had a man looking right through me, you know, and, and, and asking so many, you know, uh, deep questions. Um, but eventually I, I probably I came out all right because a few months later I went to join him and I worked with him for about four years in Qatar. Interesting. So let's let's uh, we'll come back to the Qatar work. Let's let's wind it back a bit. Talk about your first academy job in Holland. You mentioned that. How did that come about? Um, what was that like in terms of uh, your coach and, and working with those elite young players? Yeah, I uh, I did I did have the ambition like a lot of young players to to play at the highest level or eventually become a professional footballer. Like I said, scouting was difficult at the time. There wasn't much going on, so you had to work your own way up, which I did. I went to, you know, play about three, four levels higher than I originally, the players I come from. Um, eventually, I went to play at sort of the third tier of Holland at that time. The whole leagues have changed now with, uh, in Holland, you got now the Eredivisie and the First Division, and then second and third. At that time, you just had the Eredivisie, First Division, and then you had a sort of a semi-professional amateur level, which was called the Hofklasse. Um, I played there for a club called the Preface. The coach that I had at that time was becoming the coach of NEC Nijmegen. He knew my of my interest in, in working with you know uh, with young players, uh, what I did, technical work, and I joined him at NEC Nijmegen, coaching the under, I have to say, the 14s, uh, and, and that's how it came about. So I started to play for them in the second team and coached, you know, during uh, during the evenings. Do you remember what your a typical session might have looked like when you first started coaching those 14s? 
it was, it's like I said, it, it was just a carry on with, I had better players. I used those players as well to, to make that video for, for Will Curve eventually. So it was all skill orientated. Everything was all about making the kids as skillful as they can, creating a lot of opportunity. Coaches is all about repetition and success. So it was all, all uh, skill development on one side, and then it was all creating the environment for the kids to experience and explore. 1v1, 2v2s, 3v3s, 4v4s, all the way up to 2v1, 3v2, 4v3s. The reason why I always use the overloads is that the players themselves get into an environment where they have to make the decision whether to dribble or to pass. Because I never believed in, in, in a situation where the coach was telling the players what to do, because they might do it and it might be a right decision, but it's still not their decision. It's your decision. And I wanted to get bring the players and make them technically as best as I could and bring them from awareness to understanding. So aware, what moves, what turns have you got in what particular one-for-one -one situation? Do you understand how to use it and what end product will come after it, which could be a pass, continue to dribble across or a shot? Eventually, I took it then to a little bit the bigger games into more structured, a bit more, you know, a bit more tactical information about width and depth and time and space. But it was all around you know, making sure that the players could make the right decisions. When they got under pressure, can you get out of trouble and find a better solution for yourself? Do you, do you remember, this might be, you know, asking a long time ago, but do you remember how much time you would have spent on team possession and how much time you would have spent on individual possession as a sort of percentage working with under-14s? If, if you slice it up as a, as a sort of a pizza, so, and, the, and I always use this when I speak to other coaches, if you work with very young players, you have a lot of a lot of small pieces of the pizza, and I mean six to eight minutes, yeah. And then you do something else. For instance, if you work with eight to nine to ten year olds, I was working twelve to thirteen, fourteen. So the slices of the pizza were slightly bigger. They were all in between ten to twelve minutes. So ten to twelve minutes practice, ten to twelve minutes play, ten to twelve minutes practice into a more game-related situation. For instance, with finishing, then again ten to twelve minutes game where that finishing or whatever the practice came back. So, and then in the end, you probably ended up with, you know, uh, like a, a bit of a longer game, but it would but still be chopped up by two, two times 10 minutes or something like that. It's interesting you think about Holland. I mean, I've been lucky to travel there a bit and watch a few of the academies train and play competitions there when I was in academy football. There, there is that culture of technical coaching, isn't it? Ball mastery and 1v1 is pretty much a staple in most academies. Yeah. Why is culturally there's such a... No, emphasis on technique. Yeah, I think Holland has always been has, has got a you know a culture and an identity of making sure that we work the, the ball as well as we can, you know, on and around the pitch, try to find the extra man, utilizing space and everything. I honestly do think that they 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 they, they cut themselves short in not really adapting and introducing the curve and method throughout their whole uh, you know coaching curriculum because I think we would have been even further ahead than in many other countries. Holland, for instance, is a Western European country, but it's got a almost a sort of South European or almost South American influence in it. Yeah, because, like I said, we always like to play. Um, we always like to play a, a certain style. Uh, we've produced some unbelievable, incredible individual, skillful players, from Johan Cruyff to Marco van Basten, from Ruud Gullit, from all players that have played it very high and high leagues in top, top teams, won Champions League, won championships. 
Um, and because of that, we've always, most of the time, had a strong national team. Um, but it's, it's definitely part of the, the, the Dutch DNA, yeah. So, so you're saying that in the, the Dutch Federation courses, you won't find much ball mastery in 1v1 World Cobra? They have, they have sort of, you know, introduced it, but on, under a sort of a different name. They never really sort of adopted it in, in the way that I think. I mean, we had, in my opinion, we had two masters of, of the game, right? In terms of development, it was, it was uh, Will Curver, who I felt uh, hit the nail on the head in terms of, okay, what should we be doing with young kids onwards all the way up to, to making as skillful as we can? Because at the end of the day, football <clears throat> is, is the same game um, played for, for, for many, many, many years. But obviously, there's a lot of things have changed over the last 30 to 40 years in terms of, you know, the pitches and uh, some of the rules and, and whatever. But certain things will always remain the same. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, the players that have that individual ability to dominate that 1v1 will also most likely dominate the game. Whether you go all the way back to Di Stefano, to Puskas, all the way up to Messi, Ronaldo, and Neymar, or Mbappe, it's, it's the same thing. The other one is obviously Johan Cruyff in terms of the style he wanted to play. And all, I always felt I tried to, to see if he can bring the two together, you know, in terms of development, you know, with that curve ones, and then in, in terms of style of play, to see if I can, you know, implement the principles that, uh, you know, that, that Cruyff things are really important. Yeah, because I was going to bring that up. I remember I've read your quote somewhere where you've got the work of Cruyff and the work of Will Cover, and you merge those through that together you have the perfect development system. And that'd be my question. Here in England, we have a similar um, issue with the Federation. Maybe they're not, they haven't really embraced ball mastery in 1v1, even though, you know, obviously in England it's not as uh, well as renowned as in Holland. But also, we still have got two different camps here in England. The development, everyone, people want to play like Barcelona or they want to basically try and ball mastery, dribble, dribble, dribble. And trying to convince people that merging somewhere in the middle, giving, because in my experience working at Spurs, when we had very much that 1v1 and ball mastery development, it was a lot easier to teach the possession in under 11s because they were technically so good and they could play what they could play one touch and break lines with the ball at the feet or you know and passing it. So we're going to come up to your your work at United in a minute. But I mean, um, so how important would you say that for academies particularly to try and introduce both those elements in their development system? It is it is obviously very very important. And um, you know, when I was the skills development coach at, at United, because like I said before in the program. Coaching is about repetition and success. So if you want to make somebody very, very skillful, you need to give them the opportunity to have a lot of touches on the ball. Um, you know, so if every player has got a ball, you, you've got 100% repetition. As soon as you and I have to share a ball, it drops to 50%. If four players share a ball, it drops to 25%. So <clears throat> what I try to say is, is as in the process of making players skillful in terms of practice and repetition and practice and playing, that's the key. That's why we came up with the formats, you know, of playing a lot of 1v1, 2v2, 3v3, 4v4s, 2v1, 3v2s, and then 4v3s. But eventually, the, the normal sort of um, game, the, the, on the Sunday, the game, the 8v8 game situations, we changed it more to a 4v4 festival. And basically, because we wanted the kids to experience you know, to have a lot of touches on the ball, play a lot of different games, whether it was two goals, four goals, line ball, whatever we came up with. Uh, and they all played six to eight minute games. So everybody was playing, nobody was standing on the sideline. And I can remember, I tried to explain 
the reasons behind it. Because the biggest mistake that we in the past have made as adults is try to project the adult game, you know, on the on the on the youngsters on the senior, which is you know uh, totally out of context. So it is a completely different environment which you have to create. Where again, you try to achieve two things: repetition and success. Give the kids the create an environment where they can explore, where they can express themselves, and where they can learn by by trial and error. Since you're now you're almost in the current climate, there's a lot of pushback towards that work as well because there's a there's a sense that everything must be in a game. There's this uh, you know a lot of research based thing, and uh, again we're trying to talk about balance and doing and they're doing things you know all around. But I mean, what's your thoughts on that in terms of the real you know sort of um, movement towards game-based uh, coaching. Again, of course, the game is important, but it's the same thing when, when this whole discussion started in Holland so many years ago. When Renus Mikkels came up with his plan in Holland to say, let everybody just play 4v4s. And, and basically the counter-argument of Will Curve was, I said, listen, that's great. I'm all for it. But if a player is not able to dominate a 1v1 in a 4v4, you will also not be able to dominate it in a 66, 9v9, 11v11. It doesn't matter. These kids need help. And that was that was the whole story. So in other words, you need to sometimes bring those kids out of an environment and show them, which is done by any other sport, you know, where, where kids <clears throat> have good potential. And that's where the 10,000 rule come from. What do they do in the 10,000 rule? They do things again and again and again and again. And so it becomes subconscious. I mean, <clears throat> it is it is it is the environment that that we've created, and uh, you know when when I you know became a skills development coach at Man United. If you look at you know the players, for instance, look at Marcus Rashford, who came through that sort of environment. He doesn't when he came to 16, 17, 18, sort of introducing himself to on the senior scene. He didn't have to think about what move he's going to use, you know, to solve a one v one situation. He's got it in him. And that's the process you need to get through. It's a balance. It's the right balance. And if it's delivered in the right way, you know, one complements the other. So let's talk about uh, the, the job at May night. How did that come about? Where were you? You said you were in Qatar. How did that come about? And tell us about those first experiences. Yeah, I was, um, I was in, uh, in Qatar at the time. I was managing um, a club called uh, Al, Al Sab. I started in, in Qatar in 93, but I knew that it was going to be difficult for me in Holland to eventually break through and do the, uh, the pro license. So I thought I'd find an alternative route. So I went through all the coaching courses in England. So I went in 93, I went back in 95, back in 97. Um, and in those unders courses, I met obviously quite a few people. One of them was Dave Richardson, who was, uh, when Howard Wilkinson uh, you know, came up with a plan to put all those academies into place. Dave Richardson was one of them, with a few other people that were sort of safeguarding that all the academies did have, um, you know, the right criteria. So at one point I met up with Dave, um, I think it was in Peel University, there was, they held the tournament, we had a little bit of a training camp with the, uh, the Qatari National on the 16 team, we were invited to play as a host as a guest country for the Nordic Cup with England and Norway and Finland and Denmark. And he came to watch my session and he, he saw it was different. Again, it was 16 year olds, but still there was this element of getting into 1v1s, you know, overloads and all sorts. And we started talking and he basically was the one that said, listen, we need something like this in England. We've got the academies now, 
we haven't got the right program, especially not a grassroots level. So I always st- stayed in touch with Dave, with Dave Richardson, and he's tried to open quite a few doors, to be fairly honest, but never, never really one materialised. Um, until one one day, I was coming to England anyway because it was a. Sorry, are you yeah, still there? So, yeah, yeah, still there, mate. It's okay. It's all right, Renee. Got it. Okay, because I'm. I don't know why. Um, to me, sorry. Um, so um, there was this discourse around uh, Nottingham, I think, and I let I I spoke to Dave that I was coming over. Um, I stayed at that time with Dave Mackay, the legendary playing of Tottenham, and you know Dave and I were, were neighbours in Qatar because he had a national under seventeen team, so I stayed with him. Um, but again, uh, cut a long story short, just before I flew out. Um, uh, Dave Richardson rang me and said, Les Kershaw, Academy Manager of Man United, has been in touch. Uh, he would like to meet you when you're over because they are looking you know, for a technical coach. And that's when I, in that period, that's when I met Les together with Jeff Watson, one of the scouts. It was a really good conversation. There was not, nothing, anything about you know, how this was going to take along. I just give him some material to look at, some videos that I did around that dominating 1v1 and um, went, went back home. Uh, went back to Qatar to, uh, to be the manager of Al Saad uh, at that time. Um, obviously, I spoke to Dave Mackay of, that I've met somebody at Manchester United and apparently he did ring Sir Alex Ferguson you know, to ask him and say, listen, I believe you are looking at a, a technical coach, which I happen to know. I worked with him in Qatar. I can recommend him. So that all sped up the whole the whole process basically. And uh, I think it was in October uh, after this, like a month afterwards, when Dave McKay rang me and uh, and said, "Has Sir Alex Ferguson rang you?" And I started laughing because Dave was always somebody that he would always crack a joke before he came. And I said, "No, no, no. It's, I've just hung up on Prince Charles." No, no, no. He said, "No." <laughs> He says, honestly, I'm telling you, he says, I've been just talking to Sir Alex Ferguson. He was going to give you a ring. He says, well, maybe you've given the wrong number, Dave, because since you've left Qatar, they've added another number, you know, through the local number. He says, oh, my, that might be it. Anyway, a few minutes later, 10 minutes later, Sir Alex Ferguson rang, and he said that he spoke to the car, and we had about a 20-minute conversation over the phone, and we decided to, to meet up when I had a break in January, and uh, that's when I came over. Met everybody at, at, at Manchester United, you know, um, you know, spoke to Sir Alex Ferguson, did a few sessions with the different age groups, uh, and that's when they decided to bring me in in the, in the summer of two thousand and one. So, what, what was your what was your um, your what was your job description when you first went in there? What was your, your duties? What age groups were um, you working in? It was it was, um, it was obviously mainly focusing on the uh, the grassroots level first and foremost. They had all the development centres in place, kids six, seven years of age. They had the, the two uh, other teams on the eights, on the nines within the academy. Uh, Les Kershaw came up with uh, the right title, skills development coach. I quite like that. But in a broad way, it wasn't that I was working with one particular team. I was basically trying to oversee and work very closely with Mike Lenny, who um, who organised all the logistics of the development centres and all those, and then all the coaches. So I had to educate the coaches uh, to buy in, in in the skill development programme. I had to educate the parents. And it all went really, really well. 
Um, and obviously, the more, the better the coaches got, the, the, the product got better at all the development centers. We wanted to work in the same way uh, as we did uh, <laughs> at the cliff. <coughs> at the cliff. And uh, eventually, we established four advanced centers, which made it easier for us to create a better flow for, for the better kids to come in and have a look at them to eventually make a better decision which one we would, we would uh, you know, let into the uh, Manchester United Academy when we were on the nine. And so then, and so tell us about how that progressed then, that, that role. When did you start working with the older groups in the academy? Um, it, went, it went bit by bit, really, because um, eventually it's important that you make everybody understand that it's like when a kid, you know, when young kids go to school and eventually they, they learn things through playing and then they learn what a letter is and then they learn what a word is and then they learn what a sentence is and then they learn how to read. So eventually it's like, same with football, you know, you break things down, you create an environment again where playing and fun and, you know, learn through playing and everything um, that's happening. But it's important that also the, the coaches can see how does it look like when they get to 16, 17, 18. So basically, it's a process that goes from technique into skill into strategy. That's basically the line that I've always followed, you know. Um, and, and, and through the process, the coaches have different aspects that they need to. I always look at coaches that at a younger age, they can teach the technique. When they get a bit older, when they get 10, 12, 13, I want coaches that can challenge and implement that technique in small-sided games. So you're back to the 1v1s all the way up to the 4v4s. And afterwards, that next implementation goes into the bigger games, 6v6, 7v7. Around 12 to 13 years of age, you would say that the, uh, the identity of the player comes out. You know what player you're looking at. Is it a defender, midfielder, forward? Does he play in the right, middle, or on the, on the left-hand side? So you get more information about the player. So it becomes more of a, of a development from a base, a wide base, into specific. And then eventually you get into, you know, let's say 13, 14, 15, where the introduction comes into 11 v 11. And then it's all about learning how to play the bigger game, bigger distances. How does that 1v1 apply to your specific position on the pitch? Okay. And so tell us a little bit about then, so you've got into May night, obviously, it's, you know, no one's doing this sort of work in academy football. You know, it's a very un-English way to do things, if you like. How did, the, how did the coaches respond and how easy was it to get them to, one, get the buy-in and two, to upskill these guys to try and implement your philosophy? Well, there wasn't really a big issue in, in, in the coaches not buying into it. And, and, and the biggest thing to that and the influence goes to Sir Alex Ferguson. Because I invited him a few times um, to Littleton Road uh, in the early stages of what we were trying to do. I showed him the environment. Uh, we brought also quite a few first team players uh, to join in at times with those with those younger players. And he could he and I had some conversations about it, why we were doing it and where this needed to go to. And I said it's very important that there's a follow on from it. How to move it on, you know, next stage to cassette from technique into strategy, technique into skill into strategy. That was the biggest influence because he basically made all the coaches see that this was, you know, oops, are we off again yeah, there? Yeah, I think we lost you a bit. When he kept, why don't you see if you can get there? Uh, because maybe because the reception uh, cut off a little bit. 
carry on and maybe we'll come back in. We can try and get it back on if you try. Right, okay. Story. But you can hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you, yeah. Okay, great. Um, so, yeah, that was a big influence. So, therefore, it was, it was easy for me. The coaches were buying into it. The coaches that I worked with at that time, you know, they were brilliant. They were very receptive, very good, uh, you know, skill-wise. So, they enjoyed it a lot. They could see the progress that the players were making. So all in all, that was that was a very very good process. The biggest sort of problems or the challenges that we had to overcome was convincing other clubs to join in with us in the four v four festival than rather playing eight v eight. And that's uh, you know where you, you meet a lot of coaches with having those traditional views, um, which for us was you know was was the biggest challenge really because what we wanted was just creating the right. The right environment for training, but also the right environment for games, where again repetition and success were the key elements. Uh, and what was your your first impression of young English players compared to what you'd seen in Holland and maybe what you've seen in other parts of the world? Uh, so I've learned one thing from Curve when I was in Qatar, and you know I can still remember one of the first days we worked in the Doha Stadium, an old little Doha Stadium with about 60, 70 kids running on the pitch. You know, eight, eight, nine years of age, there wasn't anything then organised at that day, so they were, they were all running around. And, and Will Kirby used to say to me, listen, youth all over the world is pure gold. It's pure gold. They just respond to the environment you create. So whilst we were working at it, we saw the progress these little kids in, in Qatar, the small country of Qatar were making. We had a lot of discussions, and I said to Will many times, can you imagine if you go to like a country like England, we have an unbelievable competitive mentality and an attitude anyway. If you can make them, you know, so, so skillful uh, as, as we as we try to do, um, they're going to be unstoppable. And that was basically also what I've experienced when I came to United and when we were working, you know, in those development centres, we're working at the cliff, we're working at Littleton Road. It was just sheer enthusiasm of those kids coming in, playing, you know, and showing off, showing off the skills, it was fantastic. And there was, um, there was a big uh, <coughs> report being done by that time by Manchester University, uh, by Rick Finoglio. And I think the, the report has been eventually been published uh, through the FA and everything. I still think you can, people can find it. But it was so evident that all the outcomes were so much more positive in, for 4v4 in comparison to, to 8v8. And we knew we were on the right track, but also we knew we were on the right track because we could see the kids enjoy playing the football, we could see them progressing, we could see them getting better and more skillful. Interesting. Yeah, I know, I'm familiar with the 4v4 project, um, very interesting findings. But that's interesting, isn't it, because you're doing such great work that you're getting all these results, but maybe that hasn't, or that didn't filter down into many other clubs and other other. Because I remember the pushback, um, hearing other coaches in the North talking about, you know, the United... 4v4 and stuff like that, you know, because it's very untypical English things to do. So it's about, I suppose, trying to change that culture, right? Well, that's it. Is. It, it all starts with culture. Everything, every successful, every successful business, organization, club, country goes with culture. Um, that's where that's where the roots lay uh, of being successful or not successful. <laughs> you know, that's and, a bit back then. Go on, sorry, done. Do no, and, 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 and basically that, you know, uh, it, it's the hardest thing to change. 
you know, obviously, uh, culture because people are set in their ways. Um, you know, unless they've, they've, they are open-minded and they have, you know, uh, the outlook to say, okay, let's, let's give it a go over time because it's not something that, you know, you will see, you know, in, in one or two weeks' time. You have to really give it a go um, for a season or more. But then, then the evidence is there for everybody to see. And eventually, if you look back to the players that have gone, come through the academy during the time who's made it, you know, uh, in United's first team or even have great careers in other clubs, um, in the Premier League or elsewhere, you know, um, they've all benefited from it. Okay, just before you just move on to you moving up to the first team, could you just talk a little bit about the ball mastery work, particularly the unopposed work? So we talked a lot about uh, the one v one, two v two, three v threes, and your overloads. And just talk, talk about the ball mastery and, and tell us about your the methodology behind that in terms of linking it to the one v one, and you know, and the importance and the benefits of it working alone with the ball. Yeah, well, the 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 ball is. Uh... The ball can be your, big, your biggest friend uh, and should be your biggest ally. It can be your biggest enemy if you don't control it, if it doesn't do what you want. So there's no way of coming away from it to master it, to making sure that, you know, in any different ways, uh, you know, to do exercises is to control it, you know, um, left and right. And if you do that with ball mastery and you send those material skills, you know, automatically, then both feet will will do improve. Now I've heard a lot of discussions, um, especially when England um, failed to qualify for a European Championship or to qualify for a World Cup or they got knocked out. The whole discussion started all up about skill development and tactical. Loads of people talk about it, but nobody really talks about it. That it's it's an aspect which you have to break down, and it starts with ball manipulation exercises. Yeah, so with very young kids that they roll the ball on different parts of the foot. The sole of the foot, they walk it forwards, they, they roll it backwards, they roll it sideways, left and right, you know, both feet. Uh, and it's, it's difficult to explain over, by just explaining, but talking about it, how to do it, but it's all ball, ball feeling exercises. Those ball feeling exercises then go into what I call fast feet. And the fast feet exercises, they're all basically starting with the little tippy tappies. That's where it all starts. From those tippy-tappies, we developed, you know, about 10 to 12 core exercises, you know, where the kids are constantly having touches on the ball. The tippy-tappies are basically nothing else than almost the glue between a different move. So if, if a kid, you, you know, would go tippy-tappies straight, the next one would be tippy-tappies with, you know, semicircles. The next one would be tippy-tappies with rolling the ball across, you know, on, with a sole of your foot. The, the other one would be tippy-tappies and a stop turn. And so we would carry on. But everybody, every every move would have a number, all the way up one to ten. Then the next step was for the kids to combine numbers, like number four and number seven, number two and number eight, number five and number nine. And then eventually you go to numbers like four, seven, and nine. So they get more and more. And eventually it's nothing else. And kids could go for 30 seconds or 45 seconds and move all those moves together. That's the fast feed move because a lot of the functional skills are built into, you know, the fast feed exercises. So ball manipulation, ball feeling, fast feed, and then you go into the particular basic skills. Break them down and you say, okay, those are the moves that you use to turn directions up and down. 
this is one move. We had about five or six. Stop turn, Cruyff turn, step over. I think everybody that has done a little bit of technical development will, will know what I'm talking about. Then you would have moves where people come from an angle, you know, where it's inside hook, twist turn, the outside hook, twist turn, flick behind, uh, the little Maradona or the Zidane, whatever you call them. Um, so all them sort of moves. Then you have the moves where there's defenders front on, scissors, double scissors, sidestep, double sidestep, other moves, again, step overs. And then where there's a defender behind, which is the most complicated one and also very specific. So in that order, that's also how I would teach them. Ball manipulation, fast feet, basic moves, then fainting, fainting moves. And then you would go into the more advanced skills, which, you know, where the defender comes from a particular situation. But the key is to make sure you, you break it down, you go through the process of repetition where the kids experience those moves, they can do it in isolation, and then you constantly bring them in a game scenario where they can try it. I think that's where a lot of people maybe have the misunderstanding about this type of work because it's all functional work, right? It's all linked to the game. It's all moves taken <clears throat> directly from from the game and then try and link it to your to your small side of games, right? It, it is. For, for, young, see, for younger kids, it's nothing else than, like I said, the key is to... Let's say you, you're working up and down moves and you do the stop turn and a step over. Right. Not too much at a time because you need to, add, you know, you need to come, repeat, add something, repeat, add something, and so on. But again, it's the pizza slice. Small pizza slice, practice, 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 play. But in the playing scenario, you need to create a game where they almost, the game wants them to make the moves. So you cannot be one directional then because they won't make the move. So you need, you need to sort of create some sort of environment where the kids are constantly challenged by changing that direction up and down. Uh, and that you can do that with, 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 with line bold, you can do that with four goals, you can do that with different scenarios. I was speaking to a, um, a scout another time who was at United when you were there and he was talking about your, your session delivery and how um, you used to just you know, progress from one activity to the other without moving many cones, you know, things sort of going seamlessly to try and keep the tempo, I assume, there. Tell us, tell us a bit about that. How important is that for, for, for delivery of sessions and keeping children active? Well, it's, it's all about, you have to understand a little bit how, how kids learn and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the level of concentration and focus that young kids have. Now, there's only two ways, um, or three ways really, in, in coaching that you can use. Very, very structured. So you tell the kids exactly what they're doing and where they're going and what suited they're moving. <clears throat> or you go a little bit more uh, in between. So you tell them certain things, uh, but the kids can then apply their own moves and skills. Or you go all the way to the end where you create an environment where it's very freely flowing. Those are the three scenarios. There's not one better than the other. You as a coach need to pick one what, what works best. So if you work with kids that never done any skill development before, you better work with in a, in a little bit more structured way. Whether you work in twos and threes or fours, whether you work in a square, in a diamond, in a triangle or a zigzag formation, it doesn't really matter what you choose. But you then, you have control of what the kids are doing, what direction they're traveling and what distance they're traveling. Remember, coaching is all about repetition and success. If 
if the kids have never done any skill development and you go straight away to the very free-flowing environment, then it becomes a bit of a mess and nobody really does, you know, in the right way what you want them to do. So it's a normal process of taking them through from that structured scenario to that semi-structured scenario into that free-flowing scenario. It's all the way of bringing the kids from, you know, that uh, conscious sort of coaching scenario to the subconscious uh, where they can use it in the games, the small-sided games, and, and you know, and, and uh, experiment with it. Okay, excellent. So tell us a little bit about then your, your move up to the first team. How did that come about? Um, again, it, it was uh, a bit of a coincidence, really, because um, I got to, obviously, through my time in Carrington, I got to know quite a, quite a few first-team players. And the one, really, that wanted to do a little bit of extra work was Diego Fuller, initially. Diego was that, you know, sort of player, you know, sometimes they, they just get to the club, you know, at the, at the wrong time, almost. Because obviously you had Ruud van Nistelrooy who was, you know, banging in, you know, one, two, three goals every weekend. Um, Diego was could also play different positions, and you had obviously fantastic players in each each of those positions. But he wanted to do some extra work. He felt he wanted to do some extra skill work. And what I identified with Diego was that Diego had basically all the attributes. Because the reasons why you want to have those moves and skills at the highest level is to become more effective, but in, in forward and attacking play, become more unpredictable. Now, Jago was quick, he, he was explosive, and more than anything, he had two good feet. He was as good with his right as with his left, but he didn't have any, any moves to manipulate the ball from his left to his right or vice versa. And that is where I started to work with him, that when he was sort of facing forward, coming you know to the goal at an angle or coming straight at, what can you do, what moves can you use to get yourself in better shooting positions? So that, that, that developed and that was, you know, Jago loved it. We did it, we did it three, four times a week. Uh, and eventually, obviously, more players, you know, <clears throat> started to, uh, to hear about it. And then eventually, you know, a bit, a bit more players came. Ruud van Nistelrooy joined in as a striker also with them. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, joined in later, so eventually I got more and more work. And the big, the biggest, I think, the step for that was was when a lot of players got injured and the physios were done with their work. A lot of times they weren't ready to go back to the group, but he needed football training, and that was the ideal gap that I could fill. So I worked a lot with players that just came back from injury; they were nearly ready to go. So I had about three, four, five to six sessions before he went back to the group training. And what I, what I then would always do was I would always highlight their specific position, whether it was a defender, midfielder, forward, and I would then say, let's have a look what we can add to your game. I would never talk about change. I would always talk about add. Add means more. Change means what, what players would go, what am I doing wrong? So with the midfield players like Darren Fletcher and those sort of players, I worked a lot on changing the angles of the attack. You know, so to create a completely different picture, you know, on, on the pitch. Uh, forwards, it was all about, you know, taking players on, but also uh, realising that sometimes one move is not enough uh, to, beat a, to beat an opponent. So what can you do? What can you do then? 
and that's how it evolved you know so over that time over that period i had a chance to to have an opportunity to work a lot with players in, in 1v1 situations and so, so um van nistelrooy for example he you know one of the best finishes you know that the this league's ever seen what did you tell him how, how do you add to, to a player like that game because obviously a lot of his stuff is finishes were untouched in the box so you're talking about his 1v1 work how did you add to his to his uh yeah it was two, two things. it's all about first of all it's about getting the players you know bring taking the players through a little bit of a, a journey through awareness and understanding so if i would have asked the question to root and i did the same thing where do you score your goals is he aware is he aware how many you know how many he scores and how many he scores within the box within let's say the actually box is he aware of what sort of finishes they are one touch finishes two touch finishes you know uh, and then secondly or thirdly what what are the, the chances that he doesn't take and especially when they come outside the box and what does he understand does he understand what we need to add to also make that part of his game and basically what all those uh, teams do at the top level they analyze you know all the opposition they analyze all the opposition strikers and i that was exactly the same with root and root was a player that was very his timing of the runs were very good he, he would get there just a fraction earlier for the player so he was very good at one touch finishes the key was that there were moments where that didn't happen so the ball got blocked and I said to Rude that if you get in a position where you just in the corner of your eye see that probably that defender is going to get in front of you, that's where that element of disguise comes in to pretend to shoot and maybe do a little cry of turn or a little chop to make sure you're creating a better opportunity for yourself. That was one element. So in the box, when when he could see defenders coming out to block, and when players block, they they have to go for it. So if they go, you you, you sell them. They're gone. That was one element. The other element was when he had space in behind the back line. So when he could really run and drive with the ball. And I don't know whether you remember the goal he scored against Fulham. I think he was when he picked the ball up around the halfway line. He picked the ball up and then he ran, he ran, he ran all the way in the box and eventually he put it in the back of the net. Now in that week, I showed him an element that I said, if I start running with the ball like you and I'm 20 years younger than you, of older than you, I can still show you that you cannot stop me. Just because I'm running directly at you, and the moment you're just off balance, I go left and right. You might catch me up later, but you cannot stop me whilst I'm running with you. So the element of driving with the ball, really close control, driving really, really fast, and making sure that the player, you, you get to the player running straight at him, and then change direction that was another element that we worked on in terms of because he, he tended to you know receive the ball at times and link it off and going wide and then join into the game whereas he could open up on the back foot and just run with it you know which is you know at times yeah so he's like, it's like typical number nine wants to set it and spin yeah. and that sort of yeah, thing so that's a, so i'm just interested Renny. so like so for instance you're introducing him to talk about the first stage to disguise the croy for the cut so tell us about how do you how do you develop that in him? How what, what's the what's the learning Again, process of a pro player? How do you, how do you develop that particular skill in him in terms of you know <clears> on the pitch? Well, what I did with the forwards at United, I uh, I sort of uh, always 
made them a bit more aware of what, what sort of areas you basically have got in front of a, of a goal, of a football goal. So basically, I would, um, I would have, um, I don't know where we've got it, we've got a, a pen here. But anyway, but basically what it did, if you have a goal, I, I would draw a line from the two posts all the way to the end of the 16 yards. So you would have a zone between the posts right in front of the goal. I always used to say to the players, listen, if you're in zone one, this is your best opportunity to score the goal because the goalkeeper will most likely be in the middle of the goal so you can shoot bottom, bottom, bottom right, middle right, top right, bottom left, you know, middle left and top left. That's the biggest, that's the biggest and the most important of difficult for the goalkeeper. Then I drew a line from the post all the way to the corner of the box to the left and one to the other side. So you've got two sort of, you know, almost triangle areas. So if you move out to that zone, you come into zone two on the left-hand side, or you come in zone two on the right-hand side. So if you approach the goal in zone two, the goal never moves, but the goalkeeper does. So the goalkeeper will slightly adjust his, his, his angle towards uh, the ball. The player then has to adjust his, his situation, how to going to finish. Because there's, there's better angles, you know, far in the corner, bend it in, you know, top corner, bottom corner, and the same thing on the left. If you then have an opponent in front of you, in zone two, it's better to beat them on the inside to go to zone one, because it increases your chances to score. If you would beat them on the outside, which is the other triangle, which is zone three, you come very close to the byline. So you get a very sharp angle, most likely very difficult to finish, but better to cross or for a cutback. So that was sort of the awareness that I had with all those forwards, how they would approach those zones when they would come to the goal. And what I would then do when I would work with them, I would paint a particular scenario and I would just feed balls into them because balls come into different angles, always a repetition of four. So I would go one, two, three, four. They do the same thing, open up, bend it in, open up, bend it in. Why repetitions of four? Because of my experience, that's when the quality and the concentration stays the highest. The moment you go over five and six, the quality drops and it be doesn't become game realistic. You need to keep him on the toes because at the end of the day is the ball need to get in the back of the net. And then I created all different scenarios. I worked from zone one to zone two. I worked with balls from the side. I worked from balls into the midfield, from the midfield that I played in. I just created every time a very game realistic situation. On top of that, I was I always with every player I used to try to find video clips that that would happen in the game or it had happened in the game with them. So I could then uh, take him to the video room and say, "Listen, this is what I mean. This is the scenario where you are. This is what you did. Now we've given you an extra tool because most likely when this is happening, this is what the defender is going to do." This is what you can do. If that then happened in the games afterwards, I would all save that. And again, at certain times when I thought it is right, I brought the players back in and say, come and have a look at this. And that's the whole process, basically. You know, awareness and understanding, working it on the pitch, let them experience it. Then they have success in the game. Bang. So, and just to look at that, then um, your work with Ronaldo, obviously one of the you know, now world-class player, very much, you know, it's interesting because almost very much technically really excellent, but maybe 
need a little bit more of the game strategy to maybe finish it off? Well, that was, I mean, with, with Ronaldo, I, I got the fortunate uh, because he's never injured. I, I was just fortunate that he was suspended for, I think, the first three, three or four league games in one particular season. I can't remember which one. Uh, I think the one leading 2007, 2008. Um, obviously, he had a, a few good seasons already. He became more and more important. Um, but it was all about become, making him even, you know, making him even more, more effective in front of goal. Um, and and the, the conversation started basically asking Cristiano, says, listen, on, of the first session that we had on a Saturday morning when the team was playing, he said, have you set your new goals, you know, your targets for, for this season? He said, what do you mean? <clears throat> he says, well, how many goals have you scored last season? He says, 23. He says, well, if you, I assume you want to get better, you want to progress. So if you want to progress, you would probably wanted to score more goals. Have you, have you thought about that? And I said, do you know how important target setting and, and, and aims are for successful people? It's very, very powerful. And um, so he said, yeah, well, he said 30. Okay, this is from 23 to 30, it's better. And he says, what do you think? He says, well, I think you should go for 40. He says, well, that's nearly double. He says, yes, I know, but the reason why I say 40, because I looked at all your goals. I looked at also the chances that you could have scored goals, but you never really practiced in a way that we goal scorers do. So what do you mean by that? So well, I'll show you after this session. I've got a little video clip to show you. And the video clip was all about, you know, the previous top strikers that United has had in Cole and York and Sheringham and Solskjaer and Esteroy. And I just showed them like, Randomly, I don't know, maybe 60 goals. Bang, 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 one after the other. I said, what do you see? He said, what do you mean? He said, what do you see? I said, yeah, a lot of goals. I said, no, no, that's not what I mean. You're going to look at it again. I asked you the same question. What did you see? I didn't want to tell him. I wanted him to discover it. He says, what do you see? Then he said, yeah, I'll see a lot of different goals, a lot of variety of goals. I've seen shots. I've seen headers. I've seen volleys. I've seen chips, it's great, fantastic. He says, what else have you seen? He says, I've seen a lot of one-touch finishes. He says, correct, fantastically, yeah. And um, I see a lot of different goals in different areas in front of the goals. They're great, there you are. I said, that's the whole three things that we're going to work on every time that we've got a chance to work on. So then I explained him about the different zones as I just did, zone one, zone two, you know, left and right, and zone three. And in a sequence of uh, sessions, I just took him through um, all the different finishes that were available to him. Um, and I always said, listen, you always need to remember this, that every goal you're going to score in a game, you have already scored on the training pitch. Every goal you score, you need to register on your hard disk. Because the moment that chance will come in the game, you just have to draw it from your hard disk and you know how, how that finish is going to look like. And you're going to be more calm on the, on the pressure. The other thing that he needed to understand was that Cristiano had the, the sort of, he always wanted to score the perfect goal, the most beautiful goal, the one that ends up in top corner. 
And that's why he, he, he used to miss quite a few opportunities. He, he needed to get an appreciation of just scoring the simple goal as well and scoring goals, you know, uh, with different techniques, whether it was, a, 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 you know, a little tap, a tap in with the inside of the foot, headers, you know, all sorts. I say you will always score spectacular goals because of the amount you're going to score. But the most important thing is the amount of goals you're going to score. Every goal you're going to score, it's another piece of confidence, you know, uh, that you put in your backpack. And that was basically the, the journey of, of getting him to where he is. Wow. So uh, tell us about that. So when, when you become uh, first team coach, assistant manager, as it were, how did that really then sort of curtail your, a lot of the individual work you were doing with players or the ability? Was it then much more then, you know, much more team centric, if you like, because that was just the nature of the role? Did you still get opportunities to work individually with players? Uh, well, the, the, the advantage of the advantage of me when I sort of eventually moved up as first team coach uh, when Mick Feeney became assistant manager, so we've already been, I've already did quite a bit of work with the players, sort of as part of. Carlos gave me the opportunity to do parts of the warm up, uh, you know, certain finishing exercises. I started to work with more players, so players knew me. And you knew where I was coming from. So basically, the good thing for me was, is just reinforcing the message of of having all those players now using all those techniques in all the different uh, what do you call it in all the different uh, uh, condition games or possession games or games that we were doing. So it made it a little bit easier, to be fairly honest. I mean, I suppose that's the that's the question, isn't it? Is that how much um, how much time do uh, do, do skills coaches get when you know in that in that team environment? So you talked about before, you know, when players are coming back from injury, you know, they're not freer. But is it just because the 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 league season is so hectic and it's so jam packed with games and recovery training and you know maintenance that it's just not the time physically to work individually with players like that? Um, I, I think that, I, I think the key is is that. Um, a lot of, I think maybe a lot of times, uh, it's been used a little bit as an excuse that there's there's, there's not enough not enough time uh, for training or, or probably practice. The, the thing is that the time that you do have, the time that you do have, you need you need to spend it uh, in the best possible way. Um, in the best possible way. So. Obviously, with us at Man United at the time, so Alex Ferguson was always big in utilising the whole squad. So there was always players, there was always players ready ready to train. Um, if we had smaller groups, we would bring we would bring up some of the most talented players from the uh, the under 20, the under twenty threes. So we had always good groups to to work with, and there was always room and space for some extra individual work. Why it was you know uh, just after training. Uh, we did a lot of extra finishing, um, you know, at the end of training sessions. So, and if we felt that that somebody needed, you know, really some more, then obviously that was a great opportunity again. That we found ways to do that, um, you know, in the in the in the sort of regular training session. So, I mean, I think we lost you again. See if you can turn your camera on. Just don't know if it's all slip, but it just slipped off. Yeah, and just maybe, maybe reception. Yeah. That's the reception. Just um. 
I just I don't obviously I know you're you're a very busy man. So I'm not going to keep you. Just um, just tell us a little bit about. I'm just so your transition to first team manager. Uh, how did that did that change your outlook on the game or in terms of working with players? I mean, did you become a lot less? You know, you're maybe like a, you're an individual coach. You know, so did you, did you become seeing the game a lot less as an individual? What they're doing in those those key one v one moments is a bit more much more than team possession based. And then you're thinking, did you have two different hats on, or did you did you manage to see the games in those two different parallel sort of ways? Yeah, it, it was obviously my first one was obviously uh, the Fulham the Fulham job, and it, it, it just basically was. Um, you know, a very strange way that how it how it obviously came about because I obviously joined Fulham to help to help Martin Yol to assist him, uh, which was great. You know, I I've always liked Martin the way he is and and, and is thinking about football as a philosophy and everything. That we're obviously in a difficult situation, but I never expected me to be in his position after only two league games. You know, um, and and it was it wasn't really well communicated to be fairly honest uh, at that particular time so you end up getting into a very difficult situation uh, at that moment in time you know I looked at it and I felt that Fulham was not really tried to express themselves in the way they should you know in, in playing in an exciting way uh, play more on the front foot um, but, but as you know obviously I came from a club um, that was always able to, in 90, 95% of the situations, to dominate the game, to put their own, um, you know, sort of strategy upon the opponents. And now I've had a completely different scenario. Uh, and I was trying to lift the spirits in one end, you know, uh, try to change the playing style a little bit. And like you said, it, it is completely different because now suddenly you have to manage the whole squad, but from many different aspects, especially just when there's a transfer window around the corner. There's lots of things you, you're going you're gonna to look at. If you say to me, looking back in hindsight, so would you have done something different? I said, yeah, I'll hold my hand up, I would. And probably the aspect I would have changed a little bit more, um, I would have I started exactly the same as I did, but I would have probably after that, in the games after that, because in the, I think, 12, 13 games in the Premier League that I was involved, we played about, I think, nine of them in the top ten. So we knew they were always difficult. And I would have probably shored it up a little bit more to making sure that we didn't concede as many goals as we did. And, and, and the statistics, I think, at that time, we lost quite a few goals just before half-time or just before the end of the game, which showed that you know we were lacking a little bit of energy you know, uh, at that time. So I would have probably adjusted that a little bit better, but I still felt that given the time and the players that we brought in, we were just sort of ready to sort of turn the corner um, when when they made the decision uh, not to continue with me. But it was an unbelievable experience, but totally different from what I was used to. That's my question really, is that it's difficult. I mean, now, do you see a player, you know, for instance, a fullback who doesn't, Utilize the one v one or recognize the one v one, but you know there's there's so many other things to worry about. You don't have time to go and try and individually work with that. that yeah, for example. So when you have a manager, as soon as you go in and manage, no matter where you are, I've worked in, in various countries. Um, it's every, it's everywhere the same. It's result it's result orientated. Uh, there's not many people who who are sort of um, you know in, uh, responsible for 
you know, the policies and the strategies of the club that can understand the process that needs to be taking place before you can match results and a style of play. Um, and from my experience, there's no, there's no coming away from it. It's give and take any manager about 18 months. And we both know that I think 80% of more of the coaches are not being given 18 months. But if you look, for instance, to, you know, to what Jurgen Klopp has established with Liverpool, and you go back to the start when he, when he joined Liverpool, it took him about 18 months before he got Liverpool where he wanted him to be in that dynamic, energetic pressing style. Same with Pep Guardiola with Manchester City. It took him about 18 months before the players understood that the way that he wanted to play, possession-based game, you know, all over the pitch, that everybody understood their roles and responsibilities. It took him about 18 months before he started to get and see the success from it. That's how it is. There's no way from it. But when you are in that results business, panic kicks in very, very quickly in the hierarchy when you lose you know, two games, three games, and then a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, um, emotional decisions are going to be made, you know, um, and, and, and most of the time it's the managers that pay the price for it. Excellent. So let's move on then to working at international level, because you're working with, uh, with us in Australia. Tell us a little bit about that, how that came about. The, the assistant, the, my current role yeah, as assistant yeah, manager? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I have to go back about probably 12 years, I think. I was I was obviously still at Manchester United and uh, the current Australian national team manager, Graham Arnold, he came um, he came uh, for a pro licence to visit Manchester United. He was by himself. I knew Graham as a player uh, when he played in Holland for Nan Breda and Voda. Voda Kerkrade, so I knew him as a player. I didn't know him personally, but obviously we... Uh, you know, obviously, Sir Alex Ferguson would always ask me to, to look after those sort of people that they come in and talk us, you know, talk through the the routines of the day and development and everything. So that's how I got to know Graham. He was very appreciative of that. So we sort of spent about the week. I think he came back a second time as well. Uh, and we've basically stayed in touch ever since. He got back coaching in, in Australia, was for a short spell in, uh, in Japan, went back to then Australia, did really, really well. Won the A-League with various clubs. But he would always got in touch with me about players, you know, especially from Holland. If I knew players uh, that, I, you know, that I could send him or help him, and but I, I knew that he was he was thinking along the same lines in terms of how he wanted to play, and it was just about my adventure in, in India uh, about a month later when he rang, and he said, uh, leading up to the World Cup uh, in two thousand and eighteen. Um, Listen, Rennie, I've been off of the, the national team job in Australia after the World Cup. Um, you know, I'll, you know, I would like you to do it with me. What, what do you think? Um, and I've always had an ambition, Saul, to to get involved um, at at the national team level somewhere, somehow. It wouldn't have national. It wouldn't have necessarily to be with uh, the national team as such, because I could also see myself work with. You know, at the national on the 23 or on the 21 team, because I I do feel that I would be the right person to work with a, a lot of young and upcoming talented players, because I know what it's what's required at the highest level. Uh, there was one conversation I've had with Danny Blint at one point with the Dutch national team uh, that didn't materialise at that time, but this time with Graham, you know, I felt good about it. 
Uh, I thought it was great. I still like traveling. Uh, I also feel that with Australia, we can we can have some uh, you know, some good opportunities to uh, you know to qualify um, uh, also for the World Cup. But we did already qualify for the Olympics, which unfortunately has been postponed. But um, that's something to look forward to. So yeah, it's it's all going very well. So just tell us a little bit about this finding the Brennan before, before I let go. Just so then, what's the different dynamic in terms of working with players that you're only seeing every couple of months or you've only got for a few days? So winding it back to your your um, you know your, your history as a skills coach, individual coach, you've got a few days to to work with players. Are you still trying to get into them individually and work on those those one v one areas? Is it much more you know game based sort of possession thing or combination? Tell us a bit about that dynamic. No, it's 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 good. First of all, I have to say is that the difference between working with the national team is is that within the club you've got all personal interests, and and a lot of been fueled obviously by agents in the background. With the national team, we are responsible by selecting the best possible players available, and all those players, first of all and first and foremost, want to represent their country. There's a there's a pride element. They want to make themselves pride, the families, and the country's pride. So it is a fantastic environment to work for those players. And you're right that time is limited. So what we've done, Graham and I, that the first camp that we've had, we didn't have any games. Uh, we had an opportunity you know, to get them together for two weeks in Turkey. And we had a two week training camp where we basically outlined you know, the principles of how we would like to see the Australian team play different from what they were used to. Uh, we wanted to get them to play more on the front foot than the back foot in terms of uh, pressing high up the park. We want them to be able to play out, you know, from the back using using various rotations. Um, and that's where we laid the foundation. Every after camp that we've had after that, where we had games, and obviously game preparation takes precedence, but there's still moments for me uh, working very, very, you know, in, in short little uh, burst with players on an individual basis. And the key is for me to make sure I've got a good insight about those players by looking at video material, which is easily done uh, by Instatscout or Scout. So I've got a good, a good way. Um, and then we just pick particular moments where I can still uh, utilize uh, my expertise to work. But at the same time, you know, um, I also do... Uh, you know, uh, group sessions as well, um, mainly to, to get the players ready for the upcoming performance. Okay, and then just uh, finally, what advice would you give for a young, aspiring coach who'd like to carve a career in the game and work at all levels like yourself? Well, I've, I've always felt very strongly that I needed to have a, a philosophy, a vision that I, that I strongly believed in myself. Um, a lot of times... I wouldn't say young coaches get indoctrinated by the FA, but you would go to you know every FA, then whether you go to the Canes to be in Holland or to Germany or to Denmark or to England, whatever, there will there will be differences in sort of approach. I think at the end of the day, the reasons why I found myself very confident in what I believe in is that look at the best teams out there, look how they play, look how they defend. Uh, what are their strategies? Try to identify that and reasons behind that. If you if you know that, then you've got, I think, a good outlook. And there's different ones because if you compare, you know, um, Simeone from Atletico, uh, 
compare with Klopp or you compare with Pep Guardiola is completely different. But still both very successful. Wherever the truth is, that's for people to decide themselves. The other thing for me is, is that analyze, and especially now with the technology available and online and internet and everything, you've got access to everything. Look at the best players out there, past and present. What are the best defenders? What were their attributes? What are the best attributes of midfielders? What are the attributes of wingers and forwards? If you know that, you then know, you, you know what to develop. The key is to break that down into development program to understand what do I need to develop first. Now, I broke it down where I felt the skill development element was the most important part at the early stages, you know, from five, six, all the way up to nine, then get them into the small sided game scenario. Again, technique into, into skill, teaching into uh, challenging and implementing, and eventually you bring it into strategy. Uh, but learn as much, uh, listen, read a lot about you know top coaches in the game uh, try to bring all that information in uh, but filter it and and make sure that you can you know that you make it work for you the other thing is i think practically is the experience uh, about uh walk before you can run you know uh it's important first of all to experience as i've been a coach that has basically worked at every level that is out there in the world whether you talk about the youngest kids from six, seven, and eight years of age, all the way to 17, 18 year olds. I've worked with amateur senior players. I've worked with the top, top pros, you know, at Manchester United, and I work with uh, national team elite players. The key is to making sure that you find the first thing is to go into a coaching scenario where you feel comfortable. Comfortable with the age you're working with, comfortable with the level you're working with, and you need to understand where your expertise lies. If you are very good at working with six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, don't try to become a coach to work with 16, 17, 18 year olds. Because and that is a lot of time, things that Klopp needs to understand that the value of a good coach is not of the age group he's working with. Because in my opinion, a coach that works with six, seven, eight-year-olds should get paid equally as much as the one that works with 18-year-olds. Because if the ones that don't do the job right in the early stages, the ones at 17, 18, 19 will never benefit from it. And that is that is a philosophy and a sort of a strategy that I think is more importantly for clubs to adopt. But it's important for us coaches because a lot of coaches, therefore, they try to move up the ladder, you know, to go from nine-year-olds to 12 and all the way up. Whereas maybe their expertise is working with a specific age group. And that is something, it's a journey that you need to know. And, and, and when you when you know that, become an expert at it. Become as best as you can get, um, and that will make make you stand out from the crowd. And what about advice to a player, stroke parent, a young talented footballer who wants to make it all the way, or a parent of a footballer? Well, the the, the most important thing, you know, the, the the worst thing that ever can happen is when a parent lives uh, their own dreams through their kids. The, the only the only the only word that you can find is that is support, you know, um, that they need to provide for the, for, the, for, the, for the kid. We are responsible as coaches to, to, to make sure there is the right resources and we create the right environment for the kid to enjoy, first of all, to enjoy the game, to have fun in the game, to learn playing the game. That is our responsibility. The parents are there to support that as well. Um, and they need to understand that role. It's important, you know, the way that, that they 
approach that if, if young kids if young kids are talented if they've got potential it's always it's all a matter of for them to be picked up uh, hopefully by getting into an environment where they can you know where they can play with kids as good as them and they will naturally get um, they will naturally improve and get better as well but it's important that the parents understand their role okay this is really a final one i promise so just just to finish off because obviously miller's team method is working with uh, global women's sports now in america uh, tell us a little bit about that in terms of what your your how you're supporting clubs and 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 spreading your message across the united states yeah we well, Moonlisting Method has is, is, existed for, for quite a number of years now. This is uh, obviously my good friend and colleague, Gary Van Els, who has been uh, the main driving force uh, in America from, uh, you know, from Michigan. He's, he's established, um, you know, uh, a lot of partnership clubs that sort of run their development program around the Moonlisting Method, exactly as I've tried to explain it before. We wanted to get a little bit more traction throughout America. So, uh, to be fairly honest, GIS has been very supportive in uh, in quite a few number of events, like the USTC, the United States Technical Championships that we held, we hold every year. They've been very much involved with that and support that. They wanted to partner up with us again to to get a bit more traction, to get out more to more clubs, to get more kids exposed to the Moonlisting Method, which would be fantastic. So we're working very hard in the background. To find to find the right means and and, and tools uh, to do that. Rene, thank you very much. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been uh, fantastic. No problem. You're welcome. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's dynamic ball mastery program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.